Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. And today, we are joined once again by Mike Smart, founder and principal consultant of Egress Solutions. Mike has spent more than 25 years leading and consulting with tech companies of all shapes and sizes, everything from NetApp to Sage to VMware. Uh, and he's also a former pragmatite. Welcome, Mike. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. I'm glad to be back. Always a pleasure. Always good to have you on. And I really wanted to have you on today because last time we talked, we brought up something I thought was really, really interesting, which was just that you said, you know what, it is time. Everybody really needs to rethink sales enablement and go to market. Well, yeah, I'm, you know, I was sitting in a meeting with some people the other day and I'll just share this very short tidbit. And the person who was leading the conversation said it really well. They had been engaging, obviously, with all the things going on. And he had a way of maybe oversimplifying it, but, but it really made sense to me. It resonated. And he said, we are hearing and we are taking action because what was once our 10-year plan is now our five-year plan. And what was once our five-year plan is now our two-year plan. And so these things that we're talking about in terms of rethinking go-to-market, there have been a lot of study. There have been a lot of data. There's a lot of evidence that we are doing this in a, and we're in a transition and what's happening around us is going to change. And most of the product leaders, product executives, C-suite executives I've talked to over the last 12, 18, even 24 months have felt like that's a 10-year problem or that's a five-year problem. And now because of what we're living with in this new environment, it's no longer a 10-year problem, it's a five-year problem. It's no longer a five-year problem, it's a two-year problem. And now it's becoming front and center. And we're seeing some clients of ours sort of raise this, and surprisingly so, raise this to an to like an urgency. Um, one particular client we're doing some work with, I cannot say who they are, the CEO sought us out and said, we want to know if you can help us accelerate what we're trying to do here. Um, and they have a very interesting perspective about where they've been with respect to sales enablement and go-to-market. Um, so, yes, I think it's a timely discussion. Um, like I said, a lot of data and evidence out there that suggests that um, things are changing. You know, um, things like the reality is that what we once perceived as a very straightforward buyer's journey is not. And there's a great survey study by Gartner that shows that this process is a lot more complicated in terms of B2B buying journey than it used to be. So complicated that many companies have stopped using the classical purchasing process that they've used in the past. Um, the buying groups are a lot bigger. Uh, they have way too many, too much information. And so they're a lot of times frustrated with how to get through it. But I think you make a really good point. Some of these shifts that we're going to talk about have been uh, in process for a while, but the urgency of them has just skyrocketed. Uh, and I think it's going to continue to do so because those companies who can pivot here and do so quickly have a much better chance of navigating what is a continually evolving uh, landscape, workscape, work atmosphere. Agreed. So let's let's talk about some of the old truths uh, that we've always held self-evident. Uh, so old truth, 
right? Technology salespeople are a major influence on buying committees' purchase decisions. And the new truth is that um, buying committees are much more influenced today by communities and peer groups than they are sales professionals. And I didn't believe this until we did a study with a client last year where we surveyed one-on-one -on -one surveyed something like 50, 60, 60 of their buyers and broadly surveyed well over 150, small sample size, but still meaningful. And we found that as we asked them to rank influences on a purchase decision, there were anywhere between seven to 10 things included and professional sales influence showed up on the bottom half of that most of the time. Now, my Quantitative colleagues on the project says, we're not ready to draw conclusions from that. That's not enough information. And I would say it's not compelling to go out and start making categorical statements, but we're looking at a new truth emerging. Um, I give you a, a Gardner report from a couple of years ago in which they surveyed 700 buyers, B2B buyers, and most of them, the vast majority of them, prefer looking at digital sources to get information about buying than specifically interfacing to a salesperson. And that's not, um, I don't think that's a reflection on what salespeople are capable of not. I think it's a reflection of demographics. I think it's a reflection of simplicity and ease more than anything else. Well, I have to say, again, more anecdotal, but but I was talking to one of the, the win-loss uh, partners that we have, that we work with, that we send customers to, uh, and he talked about how less frequently does clients could recall the name of their salesperson. Exactly, exactly right, exactly. And, and by the way, we're not gonna make this a conversation about slamming salespeople mm -hmm. because here's the other side of it. There's a new sales professional emerging. And what we find when we survey customers is that these salespeople, while they have less influence in making the purchase decision, are found to be the best ones and the most successful ones are are more helpful, certainly, than a generation that preceded them. They understand their role. They get the fact that they're not there to make somebody make a decision. They're there to facilitate the process and put their best foot forward and be highly reactive and responsive and supportive. And that's what's going to help them position themselves to win the business. For the and that's a great point, because that's still a really important and pivotal role in that process. So it's not like we're saying, eh, who needs them? Absolutely, Absolutely not. not. We are not saying we're going to get a move deal completely move away from your direct sales organization <laughs> completely get rid of it machines and machine learning and ai is going to replace them that is not what we're saying quite the contrary i think going forward as we emerge into what is coming anybody who can figure that out that really great mind what is coming i think we're going to find that there's a different type of salesperson that's going to show up and they're going to be more influential and guiding the customer through the through the through the journey, so to speak, not but not about closing the deal, if, if you understand the distinction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, another old truth of which I've heard much in my career: NPS is a reliable way to predict customer likelihood to renew a subscription service. I, I laugh at that one because I was one of the ones who would raise my hand and say absolutely until I saw anecdotal and other information that suggested that that was not the case. And we saw that in an engagement where we went into a customer who had very high NPS scores, but they also had very high churn scores. And, and, 
And so when you peel that back, it's like, well, what is going on here, right? Um, two things, time to customer value. A lot of people, I say that too, they, what do you mean by that? How long does it take the customer to actually derive benefit and measurable value from the use of your solution? It's about them, it's not about us. How long does it take them to start doing useful work with your system will determine a, a, to a much more greater degree whether or not they're likely to, to renew or stay with you. The other thing that we learned in that process in this particular client example was they were going through tremendous growth cycles. And because of that, they were expanding the customer success role. So much so that there was creating disruption among customers. So they were breaking relationships. And that was having a high impact on churn. And if people were not dissatisfied with the service overall, they were not unhappy with the way they were treated, but they felt like there were broken relationships that made them feel a little more isolated. It sounds like something you'd expect from a, a community, right? It's a community, it's a relationship sort of dynamic rather than does product work as a behind. And I think that's really interesting and it's really specific, right? People talked about, you know, how, um how quickly do I see profitability from my customers? But this isn't that kind of value. This is about when do they start to receive value from using your product? And I'm not even sure all the, a lot of companies know how to measure that. They don't. I don't think they don't. Many do not. Um, we were doing some work with the client and we brought this up and some of the um, leaders in the company said, we don't know how to put our arms around And we laid out some really basic things because I, my attitude is you have to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so start measuring. Well, what do I measure? Measure the day that the contract closed. We're not talking about consumer purchasing of software. This is B2B. Measure the day the contract closed and measure the day that you can start observing functional usage of the system and some value, some, some volume that, that makes sense. Um, that's if your your software is instrumented. A lot of companies still haven't fully instrumented their software, which is also problematic. Another way to do it, just old school, back of the hand, is you put that top process in the hands of your customer support team. What's the first day you called on this customer? Document what you talked about. And then the, the, the day that you called on the customer or had a meeting with the customer, and they said systems up and going and we're good to go. Thank you very much. We've been doing some really interesting stuff. Measure that and benchmark it. And then start working backwards. Say, how do we how do we cut 5% off? If it takes us 90 days to do that, how do we get it to 85 days? And then how do we get it to 75? So it's a continuous improvement, quality dynamic that says start measuring and then start looking at how you, you, you do that. I would say for most companies out there, if you just start measuring it, you're going and measure it accurately, you're going to get better at it. And since most of your competitors are not doing it or even don't even understand it, you're going to stand way up above them. The first mover advantage is actually. Well, and to your point, it doesn't have to be a perfect calculation at first, right? You can start, you can start in old school, you can do it kind of manual, but start looking at that start valuing that as an organization. Yes. And I think it all follows through from there. That's right. All right, your next old truth. I gotta be honest, Mike, this one's always bothered me. I don't think it's ever been true, but I'm very biased in this area. So uh, the old truth, product marketing teams are primary and execution role to facilitate direct sales team achieving targets. I'll be honest with you, I struggle with this one too, because I don't think of it that way. 
but I'm watching a cycle where large companies and mid-market companies have gone through a massive expansion of product marketing rules. And the principal reason they brought them in was to help drive sales in three ways. We need a content engine, we need a demo engine, and we need a ride-along person, in quotes, ride-along, for sales calls. And we see that constantly across the boards. We're also seeing that companies are now starting to understand that this is a very talented resource pool. And it's also not an inexpensive resource tool and it needs to pool and needs to be put to greater use. And because of that, I say the new truth is it's an untapped resource properly pulled together, properly onboarded that can actually transform how tech companies go to market, market solutions. And I do have to agree with you that I've definitely seen the elevation of the role in a, in a wider variety of companies than before, right? I used to see like a few companies that I thought really got the value of product marketing. And I definitely see it expand and, and elevate, um, you know, as a, as a practitioner, I always wanted to go more and faster, further, but it is interesting to watch that evolution. Uh, and I think it can be a powerful one when, when yeah. we think about it in that way as a strategic addition to the sort of executive team and to the view of the market, there's so much value that it can bring. Well said. So all of these, these shifts, right. in the way that we used to measure things, the way we used to think about things, how are you seeing those being carried out in today's businesses when they're being done well, right? What have you been seeing? So one of the things that we're seeing is companies stepping back and starting to look at, and I'll, I'll stay on the product marketing marketing role for a second, but look back and really make some, I'd say some bets, some investments in terms of how do we up-level that particular role? We went through a cycle speaking on behalf of the, the client base of the, the company of adding X number of product marketing resources. Are we getting the best utilization out of them? How do we do that? And while if you look at some of the things that people have done, they would look at these as primarily execution roles. In fact, you talk to product marketing people and some of them will tell you, my role is primarily an execution role. And I put the timeout signal in front of them and say, hang on. Um, developing buyer personas and buyer journeys is not execution, it's actually, it's actually strategic, properly handled. Understanding the company's value proposition and understanding the value proposition within a product suite is not execution, that is strategic. Understanding and nailing positioning because it informs and provides a baseline for all collateral, all content, all messaging, and all sales motions that move forward is strategic. And so starting to view sort of that quadrant, if you will, of the work elements we're going into strategic versus tactical or strategic versus execution, I think is the first thing that companies are starting to question. And then from that, we can now scale that scale to a cycle of understanding, okay, then what does that translate to? Well, it translates to a set of core assets, the content that we want to use, the digital content. Well, that's somewhat strategic in a context of this now, these assets, these digital assets and these other related assets will drive all of our campaigns. They will inform all of our salespeople about learning and about knowledge transfer. And then we look at the things that provide the inputs like competitive intel, 
and those kinds of things. Those are not execution roles. Those are absolutely functionally strategic roles. So that's one of the things that we're seeing is companies starting to change and frame that, that view a little differently. The other piece has to do with the fact that we're watching the business model. And this didn't start yesterday, but it is pervasive because even the late adopters are moving forward. I'm always surprised when I see companies still making the transition from on-premise and or hybrid deployments, high cloud hybrid deployments to developing cloud-specific multi-tenant architecture deployments, but they're still out there. And what that's forcing is a shift in the business model. And once that business model shifts from sell to license, install and support and get an annuity of business to close the first instance, call it land, drive to adopt, be a vis-a-vis customer success, and then add elements to the baseline capability of the solution, whether that's a CRM system that you add on capabilities that allow you marketing automation, or it's a security platform that allows you to go from identity management to something else, which, which is equally valuable, then to expand and renew, it's starting to have people think differently about go-to-market because each one of these elements, land, adopt, expand, and renew, have their own validity to think about from a go-to-market execution. Each one of these things will require unique messaging. Each one of them will require unique competitive intel. Each one of them will require specific positioning. And there are companies starting, and each one of them will even require, in some cases, their own stream of digital assets. Um, each one of them will require a slightly modification, slight modification of the sales model. So when companies are starting to look at that, they're starting to understand we may need to think, rethink our classical view of go-to-market and think about it more in the context of this business model shift that we're all we're all driving towards. So one of the things you always say, Mike, is if you're a closet engineer, right? <laughs> so if, if you were, and I, I, I think that just for me that you're very analytical, you, you like a, a, a very, um, you like, you create a process so that you can really see the way things move. But, but if putting that hat on as uh, sort of your engineering best practices, how would we apply those to go to market in this new sort of day and age? You know, somebody would probably say that I probably prompted you with that question, but I didn't. Nope. Um, <laughs> um, I think we have enough things out there in the space for engineering best practice. And if this were another, we had another 25 minutes, I would go into granular detail about those things that need to be brought across. But there are some. And we hear companies doing this. Everybody talks about agility, right? Um, every company now wants to think in a terms of agility. And I would say bringing several fundamental engineering practices that have been established now and been operated for 15 plus years, even more, would work, be worthwhile. Um, being analytics driven, really embracing, leaning into data and analytics about what we're doing with respect to go to market, what we're doing with respect to product marketing. And I don't just mean tracking and trapping and analyzing the funnel, um, because those are more classical views about driving top line. And clearly in this new expand, I should say land, adopt, expand and renew model, funnel metrics are not as meaningful. So we need to find a new set of metrics. I gave one up that said that time to customer value has a really high correlation to renewal. And so we need to start tracking that. There are others. Um, sales velocity, how fast the sales team actually goes through the 
process of helping customers with the buy cycle will determine top line performance in a lot of respect. Because if I can get disqualified customers out of the loop faster and focus on the qualified ones and do a better job of ushering them through the cycle, that means we're gonna close more business. Um, so there's, there's that element of it. It's, it's the data and analytics piece. The other is, you know, we, we know this and you're a marketing professional, but you're also cut out of a different breed. I know you're process oriented as well. We hear marketing people in some cases still resist this notion of process. Um, putting things in there repeatable, putting in things that require rigor and really paying close attention to it and being just obsessed with tweaking processes and tweaking the numbers that measure those processes until we get it where we can start to see some predictability and some things that revealed. So that those are two things that are very much engineering mindset. The other one is not running away from our defects, right? So what do we learn when we do something wrong? And spending time, whether it be a retrospective or some other type of deep dive, to basically say that didn't go well. What was it? Parse it, split it apart, and put it back together again and try it again. The fourth one is willingness to experiment. And I don't mean just A-B testing, because I know that marketing people in today's age do that. I'm talking about experimenting with the things that have to do with repeatable processes that require cross-functional collaboration. Um, getting deeper into the things that have to do with positioning on an A cycle versus positioning on a B cycle and sort of taking some of these strategic things and being willing to experiment and test them. Um, going out and extracting from the customer base. This is a pragmatic marketing tenant, right? Nahito, go out in the marketplace and validate our assumptions, prove them correct or prove them wrong often and prove them correct and prove them wrong as frequently as we can. Um, and don't be afraid of, there's no, there's no harm and there's no, no, no negative in taking a hypothesis and proving it wrong or failing it. The harm is in continuing to believe that a hypothesis is correct without ever validating because we will build our business assumptions around it and we'll be surprised at when outcomes are radically different. So I 1,000% agree with all of that. And I also think that one of the things that we as marketers need to do better is talk about some of those items that we do do. A lot, a lot of really good marketers have done this and done this instinctively for a while, but we don't share it out and present it in the same way we expect our engineering teams to do that, right? Uh, and, and I think some of it's just the conversations and the dialogues and reminding people uh, you know, here's sort of the systematic process we went through. It may look like there's just art and fun, but but there's a science here. And I think we need to elevate that in our own conversations, um, which will also, again, kind of keep it top of mind and top of discipline so that we're following through on those items. I agree. And, and to your point, you know, you expect an MVP, you expect to try and fail on the engineering side. That's That's part of what makes it great. And marketing is the same way. And to embrace that, what makes this everybody stronger. There's, there's another call here. We had to train our leadership and our executives to expect engineering to fail, to allow engineering to learn. Um, there was a time when that wasn't the case. There was no room for error. The margin of error was high. The expectations were high. Push for delivery was high. And engineering disappointed a lot in those days because they were to a high risk model 
and forced to deliver. I think marketing slash product marketing is in the same situation right now. And we need to allow, our leaders need to allow back off and allow this growth that we're talking about, this, this upgrading and this uplifting of the role. And there has to be some headroom between where they're performing today and where we want them to be. And the gap is learning. So if we can allow them to close the gap and not have it be punitive, then they will learn faster. They will learn better. They will be able to infuse the corporate knowledge and infuse the psyche of the corporation to get to become smarter marketers. Um, if they are not allowed to do that and the, the, the performance expectation and the target expectation have no gaps or very small gaps, then they'll continue to do things to optimize around not failing, right? Not learning. And those are things that I think will be detrimental to the company companies overall who don't allow that space. Absolutely. Okay, Mike, we talked about a ton of different things uh, about sort of this quickly now evolving world of go-to-market and sales enablement, uh, the old truth, the new truth, and what we need to do. If you could have people do two things, just two two little things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, kind of get started in, in this new new world, what would it be? Um, I think backing up, looking at the landscape of what's happening internally across the processes that we have, starting by getting very clear about who, who in the organization is doing what, because we still have instances where there are critical parts of the task list, if you will, the activities. I kind of, I'm actually eyeballing the framework, the pragmatic marketing framework right now, and looking at some of the things that just still don't have the correct ownership or the correct responsibility and accountability. So I think doing that would be great um, to start with because what that does is it closes the gaps between failed handoff. And it also elevates the level of expectation about what we should be getting from a particular task and or the, the, the organization or team driving it and what they need to be successful. That, that would be one. The other one, is start looking at the most important business outcomes and aligning those critical tasks. There aren't 37 of them. That's 37 on the framework. There's probably about four to six. Aligning those with those business outcomes and start measuring them. And measure them, whether you can measure them elegantly or not is not important. It's just start measuring. And be transparent. I guess that's three. Be very transparent about them. I think that's well, being transparent not only helps everybody learn, but it helps everybody know that you are watching. Yes. Uh, and that's yes. that's important, right? Yes. Mike, it is always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I'm always glad and happy to get to chat with you and certainly share my thoughts with um, the pragmatic marketing constituents, customers, and alumni. And I look forward to doing this again at some point the opportunity arrives. I appreciate awesome. you asking. Oh, my pleasure. All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Take and care. thanks everyone for listening. That does it for today's episode. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career.